I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave on November 5th, 2015 at the Insight Meditation South Bay Sangha. The topic of the talk is on right view, and it is part of a series of talks that the Insight Meditation South Bay Sangha developed to elucidate the teachings of the Eightfold Noble Path. Tonight, I have been asked to discuss with all of you the first path factor of the Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path, which is right view, also known as wise understanding. Sometimes people have trouble with the word right. And we could go into that later if you want to ask questions about that. So I thought I would use some other words, including right view tonight. The right view is the first of the Eightfold Noble Path Factors. It actually represents the fruition of the succeeding seven path factors. So it comes first, but it really is the fruition of what occurs upon successful practice of the Eightfold Noble Path. In fact, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that right view is the forerunner of the entire path the guide for all other factors. It enables us to understand our starting point on the path, our destination, and the successive landmarks to pass as our practice advances. Right view and right intention, which is the second path factor, together encompass supreme training in wisdom. And this is a training designed to awaken the faculty of penetrative understanding. And that is that which knows things as they truly are. This is the key to right view, knowing things as they truly are. And frankly, this is so important because how we apprehend reality governs our thoughts, feelings, actions, as well as our ontological orientation toward our own existence. Who we are, what is life? These profound questions, when unasked, leave us drifting in the morass of avidya, which is primordial ignorance. And primordial ignorance is the habitual embedded reification of internal and external phenomena as permanent, independent, and unchanging. So right view is a critical determiner of whether our perception of reality is accurate or distorted. In fact, the entire goal of the whole Buddhist path in, is to transform distorted perception into accurate perception. The Buddha defined right view as understanding dukkha, the inherent unsatisfactoriness of all experience. That is my definition for dukkha. I don't like suffering. It's a very bad translation. And understanding dukkha requires that we know dukkha exists, we know its origin, its cessation, and we know the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. 
So, of course, this refers to the Buddha's first Dharma talk, his first teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Is there anyone in the room who does not know the Four Noble Truths? Oh, great. I'm so glad. It's so funny. As a matter of fact, today I was sitting with a patient, um, a fairly new patient, who um, had told me initially that they'd been practicing the Buddhist teachings a long time and had, you know, MBSR, this and that. And at some point I mentioned dukkha, just because when people say these things to me, I think, oh, you're a long-time Buddhist practitioner, they're going to know. They had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so it's not uncommon to be practicing Buddhism for a long time and not know about the Four Noble Truths. So here it is in a nutshell. This is the cliff notes of the Four Noble Truths, okay? Basically, all experience has a quality of unsatisfactoriness about it. Why? Because the actual nature of phenomena, internal and external, is that it arises, it exists, and it passes away. Nothing is permanent. There's nothing that's unchanging. Unfortunately, we are wired up neurobiologically to create this mental fantasy of security, continuance. When I wake up tomorrow morning, everything is going to be exactly the same as it was today, and this is our expectation, and we are wired up to believe this, and honestly, it goes completely against the grain of the way things really are. And we suffer mentally and emotionally because of this rubbing up against the actuality of experience. So the Buddha pointed at this discrepancy and said, all experience, whether it is unpleasant, I'm sure you can all figure out why unpleasant experience creates unsatisfactoriness, right? We're wired up biologically to avoid and get away from and try to stop unpleasant experience. If we weren't evolutionarily wired up this way, we would eat poisonous plants and die. So this is important for our survival and is wired into us. But that effort, that resistance, the fighting against displeasurable experience is the source of our mental suffering around the basic pain of life. Pleasurable experience, you might think, oh, well, what isn't satisfactory about pleasurable experience? I mean, actually, what we love, we go right toward it. We are wired up to approach anything that is pleasurable. Unfortunately, we also have this strange idea that pleasurable experience is going to stay that way. It's not going to end, and that's not the way it is. So there's that inherent unsatisfactoriness of trying to make it continue, to cling to it, to the idea that we need to be comfortable and happy in order to be okay. This is suffering. This is dukkha. So when we know dukkha, we know it because we directly perceive the habit we have of resisting unpleasant experience and holding on to pleasurable experience. That's the second noble truth. The first is there's unsatisfactoriness. The second is our craving and aversion toward experience, our clinging to our ideas, our false ideas about experience, causes suffering. That's the root cause of suffering. The third noble truth says there's an end. There is a way to awaken, to know directly 
the discrepancy between what we think things are like and what they're actually like. And in that awakening, to be able to know reality as it actually is and to be liberated from our own resistance and our own clinging to these false ideas we have. And that is affected by the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, which we are having this series on. The Buddha was very practical. Here are eight steps you can take, eight ways to practice in order to awaken to your own suffering and heal your own suffering. That's the Four Noble Truths. So right view means you are aware of the attraction and aversion to experience and your own misapprehensions when they arise, your own mental distortion. Now the Buddha also defined right view as wisely comprehending what he called dependent origination. How many of you know about dependent origination? Oh, I see some heads, good. So this is the Buddhist topology of the human mind and the cognitive, affective, perceptual mechanisms which cause us to misapprehend self and world as separate, autonomous, and permanent. That's our misapprehension. And this endemic, distorted self-view belies the empirical fact of impermanence, of the fact that nothing stays the same, as well as the current consensus neuroscientific view of self as a constructed, process-oriented, and context-adaptive system. That's the way self is defined. They, they're looking. There is no self they can find anywhere in the brain. It's everywhere. This is continual collection of phenomena that occur simultaneously that cause us to have the idea that there's a self in there. Yet, the human mind naively attributes thingness to this felt sense of a self. And who could blame us for this error? I mean, really, the illusory self, it appears to really exist inside this body, possess a stable autobiographical narrative, have agency and capacity for action, and it continually spews forth this continual stream of thoughts, feelings, opinions, and desires that really do feel oh so personal. Wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, who would not ascribe thingness to this, this collection of incredibly convincing evidence that there's a self? And while all this mentation might feel very intimate and true, it is in fact as illusory as the apparent entity from which it supposedly emanates. Distorted self-narratives of omniscience, significance, and supremacy seem very enticing. And how comforting it is to believe that we are the master controller. But it's not true. And because we cling desperately to these wrong views of self, we suffer. This is dukkha. So much human harming results from this fundamental misidentification of the self as a separately existing permanent entity. That's wrong view. 
The Buddha taught that wrong view is the greatest source of unwholesome mind states, and by extension, unwholesome decisions and behaviors. Why? Because unwholesome mind states are essentially self-centered and dualistic. I'm in here, everything else is out there. Right view requires us to become aware of what is known in Buddhist psychology as the three poisons. And these are the habitual, deeply embedded root mind states of greed, hatred, and delusion. And in modern terminology, we would say attraction, aversion, and misapprehension. These three poisons, from these come all unwholesome thoughts and behaviors. One of my very dear teachers, Minjur Rinpoche, who this week, on Monday, appeared suddenly after four years of being wandering in the Nepalese mountains on a four-year retreat. He suddenly emerged, and it was wonderful to see photographs of him. And I once heard him say, we put ourselves into prison, and we are the prison guards. And the prison is the mind. So direct inquiry into the source of our impulses allows us to have real-time, in-the-moment, ethical distinguishing of what is an unwholesome and what is a wholesome thought, feeling, and action. That actually is the only control we have, is the capacity to be aware in any given moment of what is arising internally and know it directly and to know whether or not what is arising is wholesome or unwholesome, suffering or non-suffering. And frankly, this is where the rubber meets the road in the cultivation of right view. This is training in the development, deliberate training in the development of mind states of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And what this amounts to is cultivating clarity and equanimity. Clarity and equanimity do not exist outside of the context of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And when we have clarity and equanimity, it is easy to spontaneously have wholesome impulses, thoughts, feelings, and actions arise. We are dynamically responding to our world and our experiences from this innate non-harming. Now, ultimately, right view develops in two ways. The first way is conceptually recognizing the truth through hearing. And you're doing this right now. You're hearing the Dharma. So you have some kind of recognition of it. This is like somebody tells you about the moon. And you can envision, you can see this glowing round circle that if your vision is good enough, you can actually kind of see a face in it, a human face. Right? And it illuminates everything around you, especially anything white. It sort of pops out and 
And they're just describing this in, wow, you can visualize it, but you're not really knowing the moon. So that's the first way. The second way is experientially penetrating the truth through direct inquiry. So this is like you decide you're going to go out on a full moon night and you're going to look at the moon. (laughs) You're going to directly inquire into the experience of the moon, of seeing the moon. Unfortunately, you're not, you, they forgot to tell you the moon was in the sky. So when you go out, the first thing you see is you see water. And you see this bright, shiny thing in the water, and you say, oh, that must be the moon. <laughs> because you're not looking up. They forgot to tell you the moon is in the sky. And so you say, ah, oh, this is the moon. I'm seeing the moon. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh, it's incredible. And then you've had an experience, but, you know, it's not quite the moon yet, right? Until somebody then says to you, the moon's up there, it's not there. (laughs) And then you're directed up, and then you see the moon. So developing right view happens in stages, and it happens through being able to have more and more clarity about the way things actually are. And that's a process. Cutting through wrong view, particularly wrong views of self, is a process of directly realizing the interdependent co-arising of all internal and external phenomena. What is known in Buddhist psychology as shinyata, or emptiness, or anatman, not-self. These are the words that Buddhist philosophy uses to describe this cutting through, this knowing that all things arise simultaneously and interdependent of each other. Now, this endeavor requires a disruptive healing technology. I get to use that word because we live in Silicon Valley. Doesn't quite sound right outside of Silicon Valley, disruptive. So this is a disruptive technology, one capable of producing a quiescent, diamond-like mind that clearly comprehends both gross and subtle levels of perception. This is the only mechanism by which we can know the compounded, constructed, continually shifting nature of the self and all external phenomena. Only dedicated, contemplative, research can accomplish that task. That means daily practice of formal meditation, such as shamatha, or concentration practice, which develops attentional focus, mental stability, and serenity. This is critical for being able to know things as they are. If the mind is all over the place and there's a lot of mental confusion and and a lot of agitation, in the mind and the body, it's impossible for the mind to settle enough to be able to recognize the continually shifting nature of all phenomena. So it's extremely important to develop concentration in the mind. And then vipassana, or insight meditation, this hones the mind's capacity for inquiry and deconstruction. That's so important. We can't know the way things are unless we can actually inquire into their actual nature by deconstructing them. This is analysis. Buddhist meditation requires analysis of some kind. 
And then, of course, loving kindness, tonglen, and equanimity practices. These decrease self-fixation and increase non-referential compassion. And non-referential compassion means we are loving tribally by nature. We're tribal animals. We have an in-group and an out-group, and we love our in-group, mostly. <laughs> but if you're in the in-group, chances are the people, other people in the in-group will do whatever they have to do for you. Compassion's easy for your loved ones. It's the compassion, the non-referential compassion for all beings, including beings who aren't very nice who you don't like very much, who actually do really horrible acts to other beings, to the earth. Non-referential compassion means that the mind that is experiencing this compassion knows that when harm is perpetrated, it's because there is a mind that is suffering. It does not understand the nature of the way things are. And that being with that mind who's perpetrating harm, deserves to be free from that harm, to awaken and to know the way things are so they no longer harm. That's non-referential compassion. Compassion without any reservation whatsoever. I know this can be difficult for Westerners, you know, with our Judeo-Christian sort of ethical framework where you're only deserving of goodness if you're good. So it's, it's, it's a little tough. And if you have questions about all that, we can, we can definitely talk about that. So in this way, right view becomes the vehicle for self-de-reification. This is the direct recognition of egolessness. Now, in Buddhist psychology, egolessness does not mean no ego. You're always going to have an ego. I'm sorry. You can't function without an ego. You're always going to have one. Egolessness means directly perceiving the essence of not-self. This is non-conceptual, pristine awareness. Now, some of you may be thinking, I have just veered away from Theravada Buddhism, and I have just landed firmly in Mahamudra and Dzogchen Buddhist teachings. However, the historical Buddha did, in several instances, use a particular phrase to point at transcendent wisdom. That phrase was vinanam anidasanam anantam sabato pavam. And this is translated as Consciousness that is signless, boundless, and all luminous. And I will give you an example of one. One of the passages takes the form of a dialogue with a monk who asks the Buddha, where do the four elements cease? Now, clearly this monk was supremely interested in deeply understanding impermanence. The Buddha replied to the monk by suggesting his question might better be stated this way. Where do earth, water, fire, and air find no footing? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form, wholly destroyed? So the Buddha is pointing at 
all conceptual categorizations. Where do all conceptual categorizations find no footing? That's his question. And the Buddha answers his own restated question in this way. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. Where long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form, all are wholly destroyed. So what the Buddha is pointing at here is what the very, very famous uh, Galupa Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Jade Tsongkhapa, called innate reification. And this innate reification is an actual mechanism of our own brain. It is the subject-object dualistic frame that we view all the time on our waking hours. I'm in here, everything else is out there, never the twain shall meet. This has nothing to do with everything out there, inside, outside, all separated by the fact that this mind thinks that it lives apart from everything else. Now, academics think of subject-object dualism as a construct, but frankly, for a clinician like me, I see it as the main source of cognitive affective suffering. When embedded subject-object dualistic processing becomes conscious, and that, frankly, is what happens in really good psychotherapy, the false perception of a separate external world and an impenetrable internal meanness is wholly destroyed. In other words, that separation just falls away. It finds no footing. What remains when that falls away is non-conceptual, signless, boundless, all-luminous awareness. Like a mirror, the clarity and open-heartedness of non-conceptual awareness accurately, unbiasedly reflects whatever comes in front of it. Yet the awareness itself remains unperturbed and unaltered, vivid and vibrantly illuminating reality. This is cutting through wrong view. And that means going beyond all concepts, fearlessly de-reifying the self until all that remains is the groundless ground of being. No concept, no sticky affect, no distorted narrative, no dualistic thought can find any footing in the groundless ground of being. If this is your innate nature, the groundless ground of being, all those things can arise, and they will yet they spontaneously dissolve on contact with pristine awareness. Why? Because it's the nature of all phenomena to arise, exist, and pass away. It is only our internal fixation, our, our distorted craving, aversion, clinging to our concepts about what arises that hangs on. A unified mind readily recognizes that the field of mind and its contents are impermanent, empty of any self, separate self-existence, and comprised of 
utterly groundless, discreetly arising, existing, and cessating moments of decoherence. When the mind is free of clinging to distortions of permanence and separateness, cognitive, affective, reactivity finds no footing. Knowing this truth directly is what the Buddha called penetrative wisdom or wise understanding. This is right view. And the more we cultivate right view, the more we begin to have experiences like this one. This is something a patient of mine sent me in an email. I'm starting to see directly, or at least glimpse now and then, that the whole constellation of sensation and experience isn't actually real or external or permanent, but workable. Whatever's arising is workable. That's genuine mental health. Doesn't matter what's happening. I can know it, and that makes it workable. I don't have to get rigid and fixated around it. I don't have to demand that my own mental construction, my own concept of the way things are supposed to be, is the way they're actually supposed to be, even though life is showing up the way life shows up. This is why we suffer. But when there's no fixation, when that has no footing, when there is a dynamic responsiveness to what is arising, there is skillfulness, there's spaciousness, there's the capacity to be wise, connected, and inactive. That's genuine mental health. That's right view, in action. Uncoupled from the habit of dulled, distorted perception, one knows there is no footing for the apparent independent existence of mental or material objects or an independent subject. This entire phenomenal world and the self are experienced as nothing other than empty appearance, not self. That's not self. And that's the fruition of right view a heart-mind liberated from avidya, the delusion of suffering. With this penetrative wisdom, one is able to wisely, compassionately, and skillfully enact the total workability of each moment. Nothing is left out. Nothing is clung to. Firmly supported in right view, the mind is no longer obsessed with its own suffering. And now one's life energy naturally turns toward ending the suffering of all other beings. And this endeavor is the ultimate actualization of right view. Selflessly being a light in a world of darkness. And that can only happen when the mind is liberated from the idea that there's some inherent separation between self and world. This is why not-self is not a dissembling of self. It's an integration of mind, contents, body, and world that immediately dissolves the distortions of subject-object dualism. This genuine mental health is what is offered by the Eightfold Noble Path. And it is available to every single practitioner. Don't ever doubt that. 
It is available. It's here for you in any moment when you choose to drop into your own capacity for awareness and you recognize things as they are. And that's right view. So I know that was a lot, but if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have done justice to what right view actually is. And I do think there's so much watering down of the teachings that's occurring now to make them palatable that when we get to the point of discussing something as critical as knowing things in the way they are, we have to be brutally honest about what that actually means. I'm very, very happy to answer questions or hear comments, you know, so we can dialogue around this because I know it's a lot to take in. And I know some of you are very seasoned practitioners, so you may have questions about, you know, practically how, how, how do you do this, or maybe you have experiences like this and, and you want to share them. I'm very open to whatever you want to have occur now so that you can deepen your understanding of right view. In an encounter or um, well, a situation, let's say, with other people, yeah. when you have a strong feeling, of a let's say a reactive feeling starts to be that, but anyway, a very strong um, reaction to whatever's going on. I'm, I'm just trying to get it straight in my mind. Okay, you have to leave out the story. You have to leave out the judgment around mm -hmm. and just feel the... But then I get a little bit lost with, okay, I'm feeling, I'm having this feeling then. Yes. I, it, it seems so formless, like what do I do with this feeling? I want yeah. I'm so glad that you went there. So first of all, the first step is to recognize the story. You have to know there's a story. Most people don't. <laughs> The story is their reality. <laughs> they actually think the story is true. And when you're in the presence of a difficult person or you're in the middle of a difficult um, interaction, what happens is your limbic brain is going to get activated. It's, that's just the way we are. The best way to allow the mental processing to go into the frontal cortex where we actually do these activities of disseminating what's really happening. In order to do that, the first thing you have to do is recognize. That's the key piece. Recognize, whoa. And whoa is in the body. So you may be having a story in your mind, but I assure you, that feeling of this is not going well is a feeling in your body. So that's why you feel a little lost, because if you're chasing after a story, you're going to get lost. <laughs> so here you are in an interaction, and you're starting to feel like what? What kind of feeling would you feel? What kind of emotion would you have in the interaction you're thinking about? Fear. Well, see, your hand went right to your throat, right? Right here. That's what I'm talking about. So what you do is you immediately recognize there's something going on here, and you let your awareness be drawn to that feeling in your throat. What that will do is 
Now you're in actual experience. You're not in the story anymore. Now you're in actual physical experience. And what happens at that point is the body's no longer being driven by the story. Because that fear may in fact, unless of course, is this a situation where somebody's being violent with you or is it just they're irritating? No, just difficult, complex, you know, right. things that keep going on. It's not actually dangerous, correct? No. Exactly. So what's going to happen is the body knows it's not dangerous. The body will calm down immediately and now you're here. So now you can start to do some inquiry around the story. Okay, what's really upsetting me here? And you do this inside of yourself and frankly it happens very, very fast. Okay, what's really upsetting? Just that question alone will allow you to know things as they are. Oh, what's really upsetting is this person is not paying attention to my needs. Let's say it's that, okay? Now, that may cause, then you said you normally have some kind of feeling, right? So if your needs weren't getting met, what kind of emotion might you, might you think you would be having? Oh, anger. Anger, yeah, there's one. What, what, anybody else, what other emotions might yeah. you? Resentment, there's another one. Anyone else? Hurt. Hurt. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. There could be disappointment. These feelings are tender. And they deserve your kind attention. So at that point, if you realize, oh my gosh, you know, I'm actually feeling hurt right now. That person may not be able to take care of your hurt feelings. They may not be able to do that. But you could do that. So what you do is you open your heart to the part of you that's feeling hurt. And you just saddle up alongside it and you just hang out with it, with your awareness. It's like, yeah, this is hard. And what that does is it creates a space. And that space is your refuge. Because that is the space from which you can then know what is skillful and what's not skillful, what's a wholesome response and what's an unwholesome response. You're no longer reactive now. Now you're responsive. And this is right view. That whole process is knowing things as they are, not being lost in some narrative about them or about you that doesn't really have anything to do with the heart of what's happening, which is, this interaction is not going well and I'm feeling hurt or angry or something like this. And when you do this, when you're able to be kind to yourself, unbelievably enough, it generates a kind of kindness toward the person, even if the person is being difficult. And at that point, the entire interaction can just come down a notch. It might look like you know what, I'm not sure this discussion is going that well. How about if we both just kind of take a little time here? It can look like that. That can be skillful. So the process that you're looking for now is no matter what's occurring, you have to first recognize what's happening with awareness. You have to become aware of what's really happening. And I assure you, if what you recognize is some story, some narrative about what's happening, 
drop into your body and see how your body's responding to that story. I guarantee you, if it's a narrative, it's probably not responding that well. It's probably being driven into states of anxiety or states of loss or some kind of collapse or erratic behavior or some kind of reactivity. It's not happy, especially if it's just a story because there's no tiger there. If you're not in danger, you're not in danger. The body doesn't need to be wound up if there's no danger. But unfortunately for us, our stories, our mental stories, create a continual feeling of danger for a lot of people. It's like there's always a threat, there's always a threat. And that's a kind of hyper-vigilance that people live with all the time. And the nervous system can't sustain that. So the people go back and forth between these highly activated states and then these just collapsed states. So right view is a way to rescue the body from the tyranny of a really, really um, out of control mind. Does this make sense? Yeah. Is this helpful? Any, any more you want to ask? No. Okay, that was a great question. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for how to get in touch with your what's happening in your body? Sure, absolutely. Um, what do you usually do? Um, well, I just I just try and pay attention, but I'm aware that it's. Uh, you know, particularly with certain obsessive thinking that I, I don't feel like I really get in touch with what's happening in my body. Okay. Well, that's, that's neurobiologically accurate, actually. So ruminative thinking means that the seat of self-awareness is actually turned toward ruminative thinking. <laughs> it's, it's lost there. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, the, that part of the brain can only do one thing or the other. It can only do narrative focus or experiential focus. And so the key is, if you find yourself lost in some kind of obsessive ruminative thinking, you have one of two choices. Those thoughts are phenomena themselves. So if you wish, Instead of, and this is the difference between being lost in narrative and being aware of narrative. There's a difference here. When we're lost in narrative, we actually think the narrative is us. It feels real. <laughs> we actually think those narrative obsessive thoughts are true. We're running scenarios, we're replaying past experiences, or whatever we're doing. We're telling ourselves this continual story of how bad we are, or broken, or whatever it is, how excellent we are, you know, it's, it's a bunch of self-cherishing. It's very convincing. We actually think that's us. But if you become aware, oh my gosh, there's obsessive thinking, you're already loosened from it because you know it as it is. It's a phenomenon. Oh, and what you could do is you can actually just stay in awareness and just watch, observe the ruminative thinking, and you know what happens? Now it's phenomena. Now you're doing experiential focus, so it just, it unhooks. <laughs> because everything's impermanent. That's one choice. The other choice is, there's an entire world of phenomena. Take your awareness and land it in one of your five senses. 
They are the refuge at that point. Land it in your eyes. Really see. Just let your eyes roam around and really see things in front of you. Land in your ears, in sound, and just allow yourself to kind of hear, to rest in the coming and going of sound, like an antenna. And what you're doing now is you are in the body. You're in the body's realm. You're in bodily experience. And bodily experience doesn't know anything about these silly ruminative narratives. It's just not the body's world. But that's some mental world. Make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, go for it. Um, you know, like the more I study Buddhist philosophy, yes. the more I feel like I'm out of touch with my family and close friends. And why is that? Because they're not on this journey. So if I say something to them, like, let go of clinging, let go of aversion. Yes. Like, oh, what do we do that's so boring, you know? <laughs> When you say to your family, these loved ones, when you say, let go of clinging, what are you actually hoping will happen for them? That they also, they won't be disappointed if uh, something doesn't go the way they want. Okay, now, see, I'd rather have you say it that way. You know, the great thing about the Buddhist teachings is that there's many ways to communicate the Buddhist teachings. Tonight, you have heard... Um, a, a very uh, specific form of delivering Buddhist teachings. It's like a pure form. And it's the kind of form in which you might not get all of it, but you know you've heard the actual teachings. But then there's the form of the Buddhist teachings which are about life and about the basics of being in the world. And that is the recognition that there is a human condition. And because we're human, we cling. But we don't have to use the word clinging. We can ask our family, the people we love, when we notice they're disappointed. You can go to them and you can say, it must be so hard for you to be feeling disappointed right now. I really understand that. What do you think would help you feel a little freer of the disappointment? And they'll tell you. And what they'll probably do is they will say something like either, I, I, I don't know what would help. They would have to change. Ah, they would have to change, okay? This is now, this is the rubber's really meeting the road now because. They're pointing at their own suffering, right? Well, they would have to change. And that's the moment where you get to say to your loved ones, you know, it's really hard to be able to force other people to change. So I, I don't know if you can have that, but if you could change something about how you're perceiving the situation, what would that be? Now I'm doing the same thing you do when you say, let go of, you know, let go of your disappointment, don't cling so much, but I'm not using any of that language, am I? But and help them see it themselves, or help them come to that. 
Speak to them like a human being. Yeah. 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 And the Buddhist teachings are sometimes esoteric, but not. The Buddha was really, really, really reluctant to answer any kind of esoteric questions along the lines of, you know, what is eternal life and all that stuff. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in how come human minds create suffering and how to liberate a human mind from suffering. And so that's really the thing that you could offer your family from a perspective of love, deep, deep love. And the Buddhist teaching should never separate you from family because I can assure you almost two-thirds of the Buddhist teachings are ethical teachings by the Buddha talking about family. How would you be in your family? So he would not be happy to know that his teachings were separating his pra the practitioners from their families. It's not that you're doing it wrong, it's that I'm inviting you to take your wisdom, what you already know of the Buddhist teachings, and just speak to your family from where they are, meet them where they are, and the teachings will still be alive and vibrant. And I know you can do that, yeah? Of course, it was a beautiful question. Thank you so much. I mean, all these questions are incredible, don't you think? Well, maybe we have time for one more, if somebody has one more, because I know we have to end by nine. Yeah? Um, I'm not quite sure how to state my question. Oh, go I'm try. <laughs> I'll be like the Buddha. I'll restate it for you. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I recently kind of realized the way I think about love yeah. has had a there's been a lot of cleaning yeah. in that. And it's like I'm starting to tease out um, the clinging and pulling it away from the love. But it's been hard because it feels like my whole life I've kind of equated or mixed in there clinging with love. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm starting to see that they're different. So. And what are you starting to see about the difference? There's a lot more space around just loving someone and, and a clinging. Um, and I guess it, it came up because um, my mom's in hospice. Yes. And I am so thankful for the Buddhist tools that I have because this is a difficult situation. And I see the way it's affecting the rest of my family and they don't have these tools. Yes. And like my sister's struggling a lot. Um, and it's like she's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. And and I, I can tell that she has a lot of aversion to what's happening because it makes her feel so uncomfortable. Right. Um, and then and then I and then she loves my mom, but it's in such a clinging, I need you to be this way, a certain way, because I'm feeling uncomfortable. Yes. And then, and then I started seeing it like in myself and how, especially in my past romantic relationships and stuff, the way I've um, held love was in a very clingy, 
So can you comment on... You know, what you've just done is you've spoken right view and wrong view. Don't you think? And it was beautifully stated. So, as I recommended for this other woman here, you are, because of the Buddhist teachings, you know that birth, illness, old age, and death are what human bodies do. And there is an inherent unsatisfactoriness about that because we have an illusion of security and continuance. None of that's supposed to happen. Right? Your sister is overwhelmed by her own mental construction about the way things are supposed to be. And it's rubbing up against the reality of the inevitability of your mother's illness and passing. Mm -hmm. That is a cause for deep compassion. I mean such incredible compassion because there's nothing wrong with your sister other than inherent the human condition and inherent human suffering, right? Mm -hmm. And the Buddhist teachings are so beautiful and right view is so beautiful because you're experiencing the liberation from the direct experience. That's the second way. Clearly you've heard the Buddhist teachings so you've got right view in the hearing, and now in your life you are allowing the passing of your mother, this process, to inform you about how love can actually liberate you rather than create suffering in your life because we're expecting love to be something it's actually not. Right? So I'm thanking you because that was such a beautiful way, I think, to bring the talk to a conclusion by really seeing how wrong view and right view can allow us to be in life with less suffering or more suffering. So thank you. And thank you all. Beautiful questions. Thank you.